Welcome to Nerds at Church, a podcast about nerdery and the Bible. I'm Pastor Emily, and I use pronouns like they, them, theirs. And I'm Pastor Kay, and my pronouns are she, her. And I'm Felipe Maya, and my pronouns are he, him. In this episode, we'll discuss the 15th Sunday after Pentecost, also known as Proper 20 or Lectionary 25, which this year falls on September 18th. We do have a content note for you this episode. When we're discussing the first reading, we talk briefly about selling humans and killing children. Check out the episode description for links to the Bible passages and other references we make in this episode. This week, we are diving into capitalism with our guest, Dr. Felipe Maia, who is the Assistant Professor of Theology at Boston University School of Theology. He teaches and writes in the areas of Christian liberation theologies, philosophical theology, and theology and economics. And we are so glad to have you with us today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure being here. Uh, So just to start us off a bit, what we know as capitalism today is very different than the economy of the ancient world. Uh, Although when we read the Bible, we do see, you know, rich people and there's even some talk of supply and demand. And so I realize this seems like a huge question, but can you tell us a bit about how today's understanding of capitalism is different from the economy that we read about in the ancient world? I can definitely try Um, Certainly what we call capitalism, I would begin there. What we call capitalism is a modern invention. It's an economic, political, social system that begins in the modern period. There's discussion and some tension as to when it began. Some say it's, you know, some free Italian cities in the 1400s. Others say it's commercial cities in the low countries in the 1600s. But it's uh, fairly clear that by the time that we get to the Industrial Revolution in England in the 1700s, capitalism is in play. It's There is a global market, there are laws, there are ter- types of social relations and industries that are peculiar to capitalism. That is, there is a new kind of economic system that emerges and it is consolidated in the modern period. Sure. Uh, as for, for the Bible world, there are also many types of economies that are represented in the Hebrew scriptures and in the New Testament. So we see in some cases economies that are pretty much agrarian economies, subsistence economies, where people are producing off the land and there's little trade with neighboring countries. On the other hand, there are moments, especially with the consolidation of the monarchy, that just start to see more developed economic systems with taxation, trade with foreign nations, where, you know, people who produce in the fields pay tributes to most likely the temple in Jerusalem. And then there are moments clearly across the many, many books in the Bible where the people of Israel are colonized, to use a more modern term, colonized by foreign mm-hmm. superpowers. Sure. And, and, and there is an eco- a, a more robust economic system that is connected to that type of uh, more, I would say, oppressive relationship to foreign powers that colonize the land and require tributes to be paid to them. Uh, so clearly there are very different systems. And what we know today of capitalism is fairly different from the world that we see uh, in the scriptures, especially in the New Testament, uh, where the Roman Empire is controlling much of the economic activity in Palestine, Israel. Sure. So is there any biblical connection to capitalism at all? Like it's obviously in terms of time, it's two separate things. But I'm curious, like both for capitalism and for other economic systems that we have today, like are there bases in 
the Bible anywhere for them or? There will always be, right? Because there people sometimes make interpretations of scripture, you know, to support ideas that are present to us, even though they are sort of different from the worldview uh, mm-hmm. represented in scripture. So uh, I've heard accounts of people who are pro-capitalist, let's call them that way, like pro-capitalist positions who say that the parable of the talents showcases mm-hmm. someone who is wise and invests you know, and therefore is validated by by Jesus according to the story. Uh, so there are accounts of people today who believe that profit is a good thing, and therefore that there is biblical validation for capitalism. There is a, a robust lineage of uh, a, a tradition, I would call, of Christian socialists who understand primarily based off of their reading of the Book of Acts, and where it describes the apostles of having everything in common. So there's a long tradition in the modern period, certainly, that treats that as an indication that uh, a socialist system is a more Christian-like way of organizing society because, you know, the apostles had nothing in common and they shared everything. So this idea of, of a communitarian economy has appeals to many Christians today, has appealed to many Christians in the past as well. So another piece of that is the connection to liberation theology, right? When I was learning about liberation theology, it's the preferential option for the poor or the preferential option for the oppressed. So I'm curious where, because you've done a lot of work with liberation theology as well, where you find liberation theology fits. Like I see connections between liberation theology and Christian socialism, but I don't know that they're actually like the same or is there like, would you... Put them in the same group how would you like differentiate i guess good question yeah there are several i would say lineages of christian socialism but a lot of liberation theologians were connected in some way to it so the latin american liberation theologians that i study more closely were connected to some christian socialist traditions in france some of them connected to german socialist parties and social democracies in the german context and there are several socialist parties in the Latin American context that are also mm-hmm. Christian. They are connected to, to church movements. So there is an, the preferential option of the for the poor that is an important, I would say, the foundation for liberation theology mm-hmm. is a statement that, you know, understands or proclaims that you know God by witnessing God's movement in history amongst those who have been oppressed, right? Mm-hmm. That, that, that God reveals God's self to us in the moment of liberation. Right. When people who were formerly enslaved and oppressed are delivered from those who oppressed them. I'm referencing here the story in Exodus chapter 3, where God comes down to Moses and proclaims that God has witnessed the suffering of the people and has come down to deliver them. Mm. So this type of mentality is important for liberation theologians and impacts their views of the economy. An economy that produces wealth at the expense of the poor is for many of us incompatible with a Christian witness. Sure. Whereas economies that are fundamentally based on empowering workers, empowering those who are oppressed, these are to be appreciated as you know endorsing fundamental Christian values, fundamental Christian truths about who God is and who we are in light of each other, in light of God's creation. So if you could say that 
for example, fascism is using the system of government to inflict oppression, then Christian socialism would be trying to use the system of government to avoid or remove oppression? Not only the system of government. I think Christian socialism, as I understand it, begins not necessarily with government structures, but with begins with coalitions of workers, of people who have been oppressed. So sure. it's a it's a bottom up approach as opposed to government coming down and supporting people. Sure. Now, with regards to government, yes, one of the functions of government in a Christian socialist perspective, I think, would be to support the livelihoods of poor people, of working class people, of those who are marginalized by virtue of uh, of gender identity, by virtue of uh, ethnicity, by virtue of their tribal origins, of their national identity, and so on and so forth. So the role of government would be to support those kind of grassroots movements that are fighting for for, for liberation, that are struggling for their freedoms and uh, to empower themselves and their lives and in, in their economic subsistence and their, in their thriving. Yeah. So as we head into this next part, I feel like I should point out that while on this podcast, I have spent a fair amount of time explaining that I am not and have never been Catholic. This time, I feel like I should say I am not and have never been a Calvinist. So like, don't call me an expert on that. But... <laughs> Adam Smith, who is often called the father of modern capitalism, grew up Presbyterian in Scotland in the 1700s. And he didn't actually talk about his religious beliefs very much, apparently. But I was wondering, do you see connections between the fundamental ideas of Calvinism and the basis of capitalism in the world? Since you started your question with a caveat, I'll start my answer with a caveat. (laughs) I'm a Methodist. Uh, I grew up in Methodist. Of course you are. So, <laughs> yep. so, therefore, we are supposed to hate the Presbyterians. Of course, I don't. <laughs> there is a, a theological obligation to dislike the Presbyterians. The Wesleyan movement was fighting to the nails. Lutherans have no ideas about that. <laughs> yes. That's now, like on to Adam Smith. So, Adam Smith himself, he, as, as you mentioned, Pastor K., was not someone who professed publicly his beliefs or faith. He grew up Presbyterian in the Church of Scotland. But by and large, he might be defined as a deist, as someone who admits the existence of a supreme being, sure. uh, of a god or someone who created the universe with certain laws, but doesn't intervene in history. So I think right. that's the best way to describe Adam Smith. However, I think, in my opinion, it's very fair to suggest that there are elements of his economic thought and his philosophical worldview that are marked by his Calvinist roots. Sure. So many of your listeners certainly have heard the phrase, the invisible hand of the market, which shows up uh, in a couple of writings from Adam Smith to suggest that even under circumstances that seem unlikely, things will work out in a particular way. Right. So, so in Adam Smith's situation, his, his worldview was that in a market society, even though individual people are always fighting for their own self-interest, they are on, always acting on their own self-interest, that fact alone under certain market circumstances would create social goods. So it's, it's, it's good sure. for us as a society that each one of us struggles for their own self-interest. I think I've heard public education being called a social good. It's a good idea to have a educated populace because that improves your economy in general. Correct. So I I might go to school just because I want to get a fancy job. 
Sure. But publicly, if all of us had access to public education, even though individuals are going for different, sometimes selfish reasons towards that good, all of sure. us will benefit more or less equally because, you know, in certain circumstances, even though I'm pursuing selfish reasons, we will benefit socially from it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it contradicts or butts up against what is happening right now with education, where yeah. the realization has been an educated populace, a populace that can think critically and think for themselves, is not going to acquiesce to systems of oppression as easily as one that doesn't have the education. And so that's like, as we see massive defunding of education has been happening. And then with the pandemic and the teacher shortages and just like that, really just eating away at public education and the idea that people, I mean, that's why student loans came about, right? To make it harder for poor people to get an education. Yeah. Yeah. And because there is active defunding of public education and especially in higher education settings, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. If I could go Back to Adam Smith very quickly, I would just say that in his view of the invisible hand that more or less controls the market and our livelihoods, there are echoes of a certain Calvinist understanding of divine providence. That is that things happen for a particular reason, right? So even though Adam Smith himself was not professing any type of Calvinist belief, there's a certain pattern of thought. Let me call it that way. A pattern of thought that is kind of Calvinist and is translated into his views of the market economy. Sure. I've definitely heard people talk about the market as though it was a living thing with a will of its own, uh, whether they use the phrase invisible hand or not. Uh, And sometimes it does sound like the way that people talk about the market is very similar to the way that people talk about God's will. And especially with the emphasis that Calvinism puts on God's sovereignty and an ultimate power that could lead to some really interesting ideas about how are we supposed to react to the market and and what does it mean in our daily lives yeah i agree with that yes especially because there are actual like influences on the market right whenever the fed changes the interest rate like there are things that the government is doing to impact the market not just like this invisible ominous hand that's like or even just elon musk and jeff bezos for that matter (laughs) Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And I'm sure all of that plays right into the Protestant work ethic. Thank you, Calvin. Yeah. But also, uh, what Adam Smith imagined and what we live with today are, all, are very different worlds. And I'm not just talking about the existence of airplanes and computers. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about uh, what do people mean when they say that we live in late stage capitalism? I hear that phrase a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's one of those phrases that changed meaning over the past 100 and something years. So it it was first introduced in the turn to the 20th century to refer mostly in the German context to the decline of a certain force of capitalist enterprises and the rise of some social democratic ideals. And it's now being retrieved more recently in a more critical vein by thinkers and activists who believe that capitalism is unjust. And so late capitalism is used to refer to new patterns within the market, the global market economy that are dominated, for example, by financial institutions as opposed to like big industry. So think about uh, the rust belt in the United States where 
Sure. You would have like massive concentrations of wealth in the 19th century because that's where industry used to be. And now mm -hmm. you have, you know, a landscape that is very different. And the focus of money making has shifted to financial speculation associated with Wall Street, for example, in another financial market, such as in Chicago, uh, whereas production has shifted to other countries like India and China, South Africa and, and, and others. So late capitalism is an, a term that has been used to, to refer to those changes. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I treat it oftentimes as a kind of a, a term that is very loose And it simply points to the fact that things are changing and we don't quite understand the gravity of those changes just yet. But we know that those changes are deepening injustice and oppression sure. worldwide. So late capitalism has become a kind of a, a call to, uh, to envision different modes of arranging our economies in, on a global scale. Yeah. I don't know that I could quote it, but there's a quote that's been going around the internet for the last several months now from one of Carl Sagan's books about his concerns about the future of America when the production jobs move offshore and America is stuck mostly doing the, the administrative and, and creative stuff. But I don't remember exactly how it goes. Yeah. But yeah, I could see how those changes would impact the culture hugely. Exactly. And a lot of, of people who are using the term late capitalism are thinking about changes in culture, like how mm -hmm. changes in how we talk to each other, uh, the explosion of telecommunications, they are having an impact on how we think about our economy. And the, the, so there is a cultural element to capitalism that is being addressed with this term late capitalism or late stage capitalism. Yeah, sure. That's fascinating. I tend to use the term capitalist dystopian hellscape instead of late stage yeah. capitalism but it's similar ideas sounds nerdy and accurate i like it <laughs> <laughs> i try yeah npr had an art had a, a segment the other day about like the development of youtube and facebook and those sorts of things that we look at as communication and as news gathering and that sort of thing but like youtube in like 2016 was like yeah we're gonna actually focus on not giving people the best information for what they're looking for, but the most strong emotional reaction for what they're looking for. And that like, yeah, that choice, That's right. Has been part of sending us down this like whole other path of what we assume is communication, but is not necessarily actually. Yeah. 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 And one of the old promises of, of the internet was the democratization of, of information, our access to, to this or that. And I think you're speaking to, well, it's still kind of mediated by large corporate money and, and power. And therefore, the way in which that information is shared or not shared is kind of filtered through some of those big interests. Sure. Yeah. So this is like a lot of big economic language, which is, you know, as we said, not our forte and presumably not most of our listeners, I'm assuming. I don't know. But part of what we also try and do is be really intentional about like what this has to do with the Bible and like getting deeper into, hence the deep dive, into like what the connections are with the Bible. And the Bible does like even in the sense of it's not advocating an economic framework necessarily, though there's some argument to be made that Hebrew scriptures does in some respects, it does have a lot to say about economics and the economy and money 
So I'm curious if you were to base an economic system on the Bible, like what kind of economic system would you create? Like, would it just be Christian socialism or would there be like, what would be the like core values or principles or ways of operation of like this theoretical system of economics? I would begin with the economic agents and I would want you to build an economic system that is fundamentally about those who are most active in producing the goods that a society needs. So I would begin with the biblical call to to heed to the cries of the poor and, and think, how does the economy serve the interests of those who are impoverished? So for me, this is about that inversion of values that I think the gospel produces when we encounter it in moments of great pressure. And that is you pay attention to those who are marginalized and you see that there's something of the divine that is implicit in there. And that in the in constructing the system, you start with those who have been outcasts to the dominant systems today. Sure. And that for me entails that a system would always need to be self-critical. So it wouldn't be, it could never be a system such as our system today that professes to, uh, to have no alternatives. Some of you may recall the phrase from Margaret Thatcher, who said that there is no alternative. And, and this is like her understanding of late stage capitalism, to go back to that term that mm. we discussed before. For her, sure. there is no alternative to that system. In my opinion, mm. a system that professes itself to have no alternative is, to use a, a prophetic language, is idolatrous, right? It, it, right. it worships a, a self-image, if you will. And I would want for a socioeconomic system to be one that is always on the move and is changing itself when it needs to change uh, because it pays attention to those who are always uh, the victims of the system. I like that one of the things that I say a lot on this podcast is like hashtag false binary where we get like (laughs) an either or option that is just like there are so many more choices than this or this. And this feels like a like false I don't know what the like singular word for binary is, but that sort of thing where it's like, nope, that's a false, like it's idolatry. It is a false God. It is a false idealized way of life. We don't just have a choice between capitalism and anarchy. Yeah. Yeah. There's the binary capitalism and anarchy. Yeah. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. And these alternatives have always existed. They, they are oftentimes outside of our sphere of attention. They're certainly outside of many of our churches, unfortunately, but Mm -hmm. Once you start to learn how to pay attention to them, you see that there are alternative ways of living. So there are currently churches that are, you know, using some of their, you know, saved money to forgive debts of members of their churches, right? Sure. So that seems an interesting use of of money for church communities. And that goes against the grain of, of, say, the, the neoliberal understanding of education. You know, you ought to pay your debts all the time, no matter what. And some people were just like praying all the time, you know, forgive us our debts. And here we have members of our community who are indebted, massive student medical loans. Can sure. we kind of chip in a little bit and think of an economy otherwise? So like yeah. these are small alternatives, but they are emerging always. And I think uh, I've t- tried myself to learn how to pay attention to them. Yeah, I think also about mutual aid groups that really came into new prominence during the beginning of the pandemic at the beginning of the pandemic they started to like really bubble up but where it's oh you don't have enough for rent here's money for rent or 
here's money to bail you out of jail because you were protesting. Like all of those different groups. Too. Exactly. Sure. Yeah. That is fascinating. I I love the idea of an of a like self-critical model of economics. It is like I feel like there's no space yeah. to critique or to like push for change. There's a little bit, but it's it's just really hard right now. So I like that. I mean, it's, like, a self-critical model of a lot of things would be great. <laughs> <laughs> also right. true. Yeah. True. Dr. Felipe, you have a new book coming out called Trading Futures, a theological critique of financialized capitalism, which feels really connected to this, which is why we have you on this podcast. Can you tell us some about the book? Yes, I can. The book really started when the financial crisis happened uh, in 2007 and eight, and there were talks about saving the banks. Mm. And I was intrigued by that. You know, what are banks to be saved? What is it that they need salvation for? <laughs> so I was intrigued by the language of salvation applied to banks. And I understand that, you know, their words have different meanings in different contexts, but I was intrigued and I was trained yeah. as a theologian. And as such, I had to pay attention to words. And I think the words that we use to describe reality matter. Mm -hmm. and so I, I was intrigued by the use of the term salvation around the banks, as if saving the banks would be a way of saving our entire society, as if if a bank collapsed, we would all be doomed and the zombie apocalypse would emerge and we would be attacked <laughs> by aliens and it would be the end of life as we know it. So why is it that we have become so much dependent on banks that governments throughout the world had to bail out them at the expense of common folk who were really struggling? Mm -hmm. So I was, after understanding what happened in the financial crisis, and I started to study the literature on finance and financial capitalism. So the, the, the concept that emerges right there in the title of the book, financialized capitalism, is another perhaps nickname for late stage capitalism. And it's a term that I use to refer to a new stage of capitalism, whereas the focus of economic activity is no longer in industrial production, but goes towards financial speculation. Mm, and sure. so I was trying to understand how banks are running the world economy, how financial markets function. And then I came across the term futures, which has a double life. Yeah. Right. It is the name of a commodity that one can buy and sell in open financial markets. And of course, it's also the name of that which is to come the future, which mm -hmm. we have hopes for, or we have despair for, or whatever. <laughs> or both at the time. Exactly. I was intrigued by that gathering of words or that semantic proximity. And I started asking, why is it that futures have become the name of a commodity that a person can buy mm -hmm. and sell in open markets? So that's the argument that I'm trying to make in the book is that we live in a time where our ability to hope for the world otherwise has been somewhat colonized, privatized by financialized capitalism. Mm -hmm. That today to sure. imagine the future otherwise is incredibly difficult because our very ability to hope has been hindered by structures of power connected to financial capitalism. Mm -hmm. Especially because, as I remember how it was phrased during the financial crisis, when they started talking about saving the banks, it, it was mostly in the media, they were talking about making sure that people's 
personal savings accounts were saved. And it was all about, you know, making sure that the FDIC insurance didn't fail and that kind of thing. But weirdly enough, when it actually went to bailing out the banks, a lot of the money did not go to the people who didn't have a lot. A lot of the money went to the people who were already wildly rich. And it's amazing how that affected the future of not only our country, but also the world, and also a lot of people who didn't have a lot to start out with, and a lot of people who were wildly rich at the beginning of, of it all. Yeah, yeah. Some scholars that I read call it a massive redistribution of wealth, right? Yeah. From mm -hmm. the bottom to the top. Yeah. And I think that's a fair assessment of what happened over the past 20 years, 15 years, certainly since the, the financial crisis of 2007 and 8. Yeah, sure. And then happened again to a whole new extent in 2020 when all of a sudden yeah. so many jobs were lost, right? Like among it, wages have not increased, but so many jobs were lost. And then certain companies, Amazon, for example, just had rocketing profit increases because everyone was at home and having to order things and all of that stuff. And, and so there's again another redistribution of wealth where in this pandemic, which is never going to end, I think, the wealth just keeps funneling upwards and upwards and upwards and the, the little drops in the bucket, right? The $600 here, $1,400 there, $10,000 of student loan debt forgiveness, like are drops in the bucket of this massive yeah. amount of wealth that just keeps going to yeah. the, that top like point one percent or whatever yeah i write about the economy but i i should be clear that i'm not an economist i write as a theologian as a christian theologian sure. and so for me the major concern is the fact that this economic system is foreclosing the possibility of us hoping so it's in a it, to put it theologically is foreclosing the possibility of advent of something to mm. come in the future so imagine this is uh, has been, Pastor Emily has referenced this already, and it's in the public debate right now, the question of student loans and student loan forgiveness. Sure. Um, at age 22, the majority of people who graduate from college in this country are on average $35,000 in debt. Uh, the numbers vary a little bit, but it's somewhere in that vicinity. So what future vocational aspirations can you entertain when you're 22 and you are $35,000 in debt. Mm -hmm. Are you going to go to ministry? You know, we have pastors in here. Are you going to go to ministry and live off of a, a pastor's salary? So you see how the possibilities for future thriving are foreclosed by a system of debt. Debt mm -hmm. has this power of, in my opinion, of foreclosing future possibilities. So to me, that is a system... A system that presents itself as having no alternative, a system that presents itself as having no alternative future must be called out as an idolatrous system. And I think yeah. our our economic system is on that level. It's one where there are no possibilities, material possibilities for us to, to dream otherwise. Yeah, that's I really appreciate the way you are using the terms. Of, like where, the way that you're using futures and foreclosure and idolatry because yes they are so frequently less so futures I guess but like they're so frequently like there is depending on who you're talking to there is one definition of idolatry and it's about like other religions right. and there's one definition of foreclosure and it's about the house you live in and the reality is 
there's a lot of ways that they and you you get at this right the that capitalism borrows language from theology like saving the banks but they they inform each other in a way that i think is really helpful when we're talking about how they intersect and what they have to do with each other and yet what are the two concepts that people are terrified to talk about in public money and religion yeah 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 which is how we end up in situations like this yeah, yeah. it makes me think about the earlier question about the bible and its talk about money Mm-hmm. And how little we do it, even though there's so such a massive presence of money talk, mm-hmm. yes, in in our scriptures, and we are fighting over inclusive bathrooms with using Bible verses when the fundamental premises there of of the way that Christian communities have organized themselves have to do with the justice to those who are marginalized on their based on on economic terms, and we talk so little yeah. about it. Yeah. Um, I just started a new call. And so this fall, we're doing a like creation stewardship three months. And it's because it's the book, because we're in the gospel of Luke and Luke especially talks about money all the time. And so being able to say like, no, we're going to talk about money when it comes up in scripture. And the shift that that is to like start to pay attention to when money conversations come up and when we're talking about money. One of the things that you mentioned in your book and that we've talked about some is this idea of futures in the capitalist sense of like the way that I was trying to, I think, make sense of it is like making financial trades, not based on the current value of something, but based on like predictions of what will happen. So like when I play Settlers of Catan with my friends and I really need brick to build a road and they're like, okay, but I want sheep because I don't get enough sheep. And I don't have any sheep in that moment. And so I say, okay, if you give me the brick now, I will give you the next sheep that I get, which assumes that I will get sheep, right? Is that? Yeah. Okay. So that's like the one definition of futures. And then the other definition is this comparison with like a theological sense of the eschaton or the eschaton, depending on if you want one or multiples, of looking at the future as a way of naming kind of what you said, right? That what is current reality is not destiny, is not uh, predestination, to borrow a Calvinist term, <laughs> but that we are living in a not yet, in the in the Advent sense of this is not yet, like the reign of Christ is not yet fully realized here. And I'm curious how you navigate, like, obviously, we have not read your whole book because it's not out yet, but how you navigate that conflation of words you've done it some here in like really fascinating ways but are there other ways that you like find them so conflated that they get confused or like how do you deal with that I guess sure the thing that I try to do for myself and I try to talk about that in the book is I think the call is to try to learn to live in the not yet that there's this not yet is both an expression of hope that things can be otherwise sure but at the same time, it is a protest. It is like this system that presents itself as having no alternative. I'm taking the pause to say, not yet. There might mm. be other alternatives. So you see, it's this dual movement of saying there might be something else, but also what is, is unjust. And I think when I talk about eschatology in this book, that is this the, the Christian hope for what is to come. I'm not talking about speculations of the world ending or 
you know, this or that people being saved as opposed to those who are going to be damned. I'm talking about this ability to say not yet mm. and live in that experience of indetermination, but that causes us to live differently. Like I, I see this reality of injustice and I'm not conformed to it. I'm called to live otherwise. And that I think is the, the force of Christian of, of the, the terminologies around Christian eschatology. And throughout history, Christian communities have always been, you know, at their best when they understood that ability of to say not yet. Mm, sure. You know, yeah. so there's a lot of apocalyptic, ap eschatological movements that emerge when Christianity gets too comfortable with the powers that be, whether this is the Roman Empire or the regime of Christendom in medieval Europe or the, the role of the church in colonialism, the role of the church in imperialism. There have been mm -hmm. Christians who have said, not yet. And I think my kind of the, the witness that I aspire to, uh, to perform in the world is that of not yet. This reality of injustice has an end. And I live in that indetermination of and the hope for, for something else to come. And that feels especially appropriate for this week, since last week we heard the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin and were focused on the idea that God never gives up on us. Mm -hmm. I suppose it's true that we don't have to give up on us either. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I love that. I get really discouraged by our economic situation and like on a personal and on a professional and on a like global level. But I love that there is this like very clear, small, like not yet feels so manageable like that. That feels like something I can do to yeah. push back, that there that there is a space to push back against it. And I'm not just like condemned to capitalist hellscape, but I can say, OK, right now, capitalist hellscape, but not yet the future, not yet the way of God. I love that. That gives me hope. <laughs> Amazing. So, Dr. Felipe, any other thoughts on life, the universe, and everything? One thought on, on this last conversation about hope. For me, I'm always reading sci-fi novels. Yes. Because I think they are expressions of this not yet. Uh, yes. So when I Absolutely. Uh, in the past, I taught a class discussing this, and we finished the class reading Octavia Butler, The Parable of the Sower. And it was just a beautiful kind of way of seeing someone who imagined the world otherwise, you know. And you see in the novel by Octavia Butler this dual force of imagination for the future, which is first to say that things can be otherwise, but also it's an indictment on our reality. Yeah, so I, I love that dual role of critique and proclamation. Yeah. yeah. So... For the nerds out there who read sci-fi, I think there is an affinity there between Christian eschatology and our love for science fiction, for literature and film and other cultural artifacts that talk about post-apocalyptic scenarios. Yeah, absolutely. And for those who are interested in your book, when does it come out? It should come out in November 4th, 2022, Duke University Press. Excellent. Awesome. Is it open for pre-orders yet? It, it, is, it should be open for pre-orders. On the Duke website, you are able to read the introduction, the preface, and the introduction to the book. It's available there. There's a link, yes. and it okay. is available for pre-order. Awesome. And we will link, we'll link, of course, to your bio, but we'll make sure that we link both to the place where people can like read the preface and intro and where they can pre-order if they'd like. Thank yeah. you. 
Thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, this was wonderful. Yeah. Thank you for having me. This was wonderful indeed. Thank you very much. Great. Our first reading for this episode is from Amos chapter 8, verses 4 through 7. Amos reminds those who would cheat in their business dealings, especially against the poor, that God will remember their deeds. So one of the themes for this passage is the idea of economic exploitation, which comes as no surprise given our <laughs> deep dive. Um, and I was thinking about this and particularly the lines at the end about buying and selling the needy and and thinking about the Hunger Games, where like there's the Hunger Games are going to come up multiple times. Oh, sure. For this episode and our Speaking next episode. Speaking of late stage capitalism. Yeah. Right. But there's this sense that like there's there's so much capitalism in the whole thing. But then even when you become a victor, you still like comparatively, you still don't have that much money compared to capital folks. But also you have a ton compared to your district folks. But also that sense of like being able to buy and sell the victors yeah. in like the capital citizens doing that. And we get that a lot from um, Finnick, especially right where he says he doesn't deal in money. He deals in secrets, but there's this, like they literally are buying and selling yeah. victors. And that's, I mean, it's not just that, right? Like there's a sexual connotation to that, but that is what we do with labor. We buy and sell people for their labor at, especially when we do it for less than a living wage. Yeah. That's, that's what we're doing. Yeah. So when we jump into the verses, we read in verse four, hear this, you that trample on the needy and bring ruin to the poor of the land. So this whole passage is basically the kind of passage that makes a lot of my friends think phrases like eat the rich. <laughs> and not just my friends, me too. That's fair. Yeah. And that brought to mind the 16th book of the October Day series, which recently came out uh, by Shannon McGuire. Uh, and one of the much smaller plot points, really not a plot point, just sort of an ongoing process in the books that people who have been reading them will have noticed. And therefore, this is not entirely a spoiler, I don't think. Mm -hmm. But one of the ongoing things that's been happening is that she has been sort of ethically wrestling with something she did in a much, much earlier book uh, way back when, because a while ago there was this immensely powerful being slash man, creature of fairy, I, whatever you want to call them, <laughs> who basically kidnapped and then like essentially would mostly kill those children. Like also there was magical stuff going on. It was complicated, but basically they never got to go home. And she was put in a place where she didn't have that many options and she wound up killing that guy. Now, at the time, it, of course, felt very just. He was murdering children. She killed him. That was the end of that. No more children had to die. That was great. But also, as time has gone on, she has been more recently reminded that however horrible that guy was, and he was horrible, that's true, what she did was actually murder. Like, that... That is still murder, mm. to use the famous Brooklyn Nine-Nine bit. Cool motive, like very cool motive, but still <laughs> murder. Even if he did, you know, as the Bible says, trample on the needy and bring ruin to the poor. Mm. So that is something she's dealing with, especially given the fact that guy and those like him are in the books immortal in that they can be killed, but they won't die if left to their own devices. And so... 
the reason why she couldn't do anything other than kill him way back then is because there was no more no one more powerful than him but recently a few of those folks have come out of the woodwork and so if it had been a few years later she wouldn't have had to kill him and so now she's wrestling with that and trying to figure out what that all means so i just want to point out that like yes we say eat the rich it's a common meme maybe we don't actually want to commit murder that's not necessary and also like really destroys or cannibalism like cannibalism also bad yes uh both murder and cannibalism bad but that destroys the possibility for hope that destroys not yet and we don't have to do that usually yeah i don't know i'm i'm conflicted about that yeah i it makes a lot more sense in context when you realize the the stuff that's going on like i said because again if she had been through that same problem right now in her timeline she wouldn't have to kill him because there are more powerful people available who contain him and keep him from doing that but back then she didn't really have the options but also like she keeps running into his siblings and like they all didn't like what he was doing either but also he was still their brother and so you know emotions it's like complicated but also if she had let him live for i'm assuming these last however many years yeah no more more children would have died um yeah not like yeah uh so and some of those were her friend's kids which is why she got involved in the first place so yeah that it's not a good situation but also like murder this is where we lean into sin boldly probably yeah and believe in Christ even more. I mean, that's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer used as like part of his understanding of how to resist. Yes, and why Hitler. he was reasonably ethically comfortable with the concept of assassinating Hitler. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she she didn't really have other options, but also some of those chickens are now coming home to roost, and that's kind of a problem. Yep. So. And that's like dealing with the consequences of our actions. Yeah. Even it's if they happen. are the best choice we could make at the time. Yep. When you don't have good options, you make the best choice and what happens yeah when i was looking at verse five amos is criticizing the people who say when will the new moon be over so that we may sell grain and the sabbath so that we may offer wheat for sale we will make the ephah small and the shekel great and practice deceit with false balances so this is like people who want to ignore any of the like what we might call economic regulations yes keep people safe right the intentionality oh you mean like crypto bros (laughs) the intentionality of rest and the balances to keep things fair it feels a lot like i mean crypto bros sure but it also feels like that the computer stock trading that i think it's called algorithmic trading or Kay, you mentioned when we were prepping black box trading and I'll link to both of those, but it's this idea that like an algorithm, a computer goes in for you. And when people are buying stock, it goes in and like buys and sells real quick so that it like increases so that it makes just like teeny tiny, like pennies. Right. But, but in like huge scale, Um, And so you can like literally just make a computer make money for you from the stock market and, and, and you sneak out anybody who's like trying to do stock trading as humans, let alone anybody who's like, has no hope of playing the stock market. Sure. It also reminds me of that Eddie Murphy, Dan Aykroyd movie, Trading Places, which is kind of about how the stock market Mm. destroys people. Yeah. And I, I, 
read an article about it a long time ago and I just couldn't find the exact article. So sure. we're linking to the best way you can, can find for that. But And then in verse six, Amos continues with buying the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and selling the sweepings of the wheat. So the sweepings of the wheat is like selling what usually is gleaned by those who are living in poverty. So it's it's not double checking, not going over things twice, but like letting anything that was missed be found by someone who needs that food. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of the like movement that I think has died down a little bit, but to like buy quote unquote ugly produce. Yeah. Right. Which is like, it's so bizarre because like, yes, ugly produce, produce that doesn't look perfect is still good produce. But like, it's not like it would go in the trash if you don't buy it. Like it gets used for other things. It gets canned into things. It gets used to feed people. It's not getting thrown away. And so this like. Sometimes. A lot. Well, yeah. A lot of the time it depends. There's complicated. Right. But like it doesn't have to be this extra like special thing that you buy. Like. Right. I suppose I, as I think about that, I could also see like a movement to send the ugly produce to the food processing plants that like chop stuff up and make a, a dish out of it that then gets packaged and like you don't actually see the ugly produce. Like that would be a good place to send that stuff because people aren't going to buy it in a grocery store uh, if you're just buying the the zucchini. But the ugly zucchini can certainly go into zucchini bread that you buy at the grocery store. Mm-hmm. And that's like a lot of the times it that's what they do. They just send it to like sure. a place that does canning or freezing or that sort of thing. Sure. Yeah. And then in verse seven, we read, the Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. And of course, anytime we say that uh, someone will never forget something, I immediately think of elephants. And so now, of course, I want a rewrite of the Narnia books where Aslan is an elephant, please. Yes. Oh my gosh. I really like that idea the more I think about it because like Aslan not being a tame lion is the famous line for kind of why he's a lion. And then of course, also the main being cut off later and all that. But like, I think an elephant would have the right personality for it as well. And like, I wouldn't want to make an elephant mad. That seems like a terrible plan. No, elephants actually like cause massive amounts of destruction. Yeah. And yeah, that's fascinating though, because I would be curious about a rewrite like that because I think it would also be just very different because of the kinds of animals that elephants are. And like, they are very much matriarchal and they grieve and like, so they naturally have these characteristics that don't that aren't going to lend it themselves as much to a like patriarchal mar, 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 kind of thing yeah it could be fun yeah our second reading for this episode is first timothy chapter 2 verses 1 through 7 the author reminds the people that they are called to pray for everyone especially the powerful whose influence on others can be particularly disastrous because all are one in christ So one of the themes for this is the idea of praying for those with power. And we are recording this the day after the Queen of England died. Yeah. Uh, My Twitter feed has been particularly full of people who are rightly naming the the war crimes and the global crimes and the harm that the UK has committed broadly, but also that the UK has committed under the Queen's reign or at the Queen's guidance. In her name. In her name. Yeah. And so 
I was thinking about that and thinking about what it looks like to pray for those with power, whether it's the queen or Donald Trump, right? Like that type of praying for those with power is very different from the type of praying that I might do for like the Black Panther or the prime minister of New Zealand, right? Like those, those types of prayers, like there are prayers of support and there are prayers that people might repent and change their hearts and repair the damage that they're doing. And yeah. So there's all sorts of ways of praying. And just because we're praying for those with power does not mean we are praying for their prosperity or financial success. Yeah. I'll pray for you can mean a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. Speaking of which, uh, in verse one, as we dive into the verses, we read, first of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone. So on the one hand, I do like the idea that there is no one that we don't pray for, like that feels very inclusive and uh, in some ways very loving, but also like Mm -hmm. consent is important. And I feel like we should notice that. So sometimes people will ask you specifically, do not pray for me in particular. And that's okay. That's a perfectly reasonable thing to ask. They're allowed. And also like if they do, you really shouldn't pray for them. Yeah. Because, like, imagine if we lived in the D&D world. Uh, In the D&D world, there is not just one god, there are a pantheon of gods. Not all of them are good people. And uh, there are some gods in that pantheon that I would not want others talking to on my behalf for a variety of reasons. Like, there might be particular people who I don't want talking to those gods for me because, like, they're wildly incompetent people. (laughs) Or they have very different goals than I do. And so, like, please don't say you're on my side because that's going to go bad places. Mm -hmm. That kind of thing. And so I, I can't. Like, I am a Christian. I pray for other people. I don't claim to fully understand what it means to be not Christian in this world. Uh, But I think I can kind of relate to the idea of, you know, actually, if you didn't pray for me, that would be fine. (laughs) So, yeah, there's definitely a lot of there's a lot of space, particularly that I know of as like a queer person where I'm like, there are plenty of people that I do absolutely do not want to pray for me and there are some people where like I actually if they're struggling with my pronouns I actually like give them homework to pray for me to like write out a prayer for me with the right pronouns and then pray it so there's lots of options yeah and then in verse four we read who desires everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth so God does not want us to lie for God or to God or in order to keep up God's reputation I feel like this is something we don't say often enough. God wants the truth to out, as it were. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to lie in order to get confirmed or to get married or anything else when you didn't actually mean what you're going to say. Even if you're a prince and your family is pushing very hard for you to marry a particular kind of person. Right, Charles? <laughs> so, like, don't lie in God's name. That seems not the kind of thing God wants. I did not realize that's where you were going, but I was like, oh, this actually sounds a lot like, oh, you're going there. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah may have written this this morning. So. It's, you know. Like, not actually the worst thing that family has done by a long shot, but also true. pretty obvious. Also true. Yeah. And then in verse six, we read, The author refers to Christ as the one who gave himself a ransom for all. And I definitely have in my head a picture of like a ransom note, either (laughs) the like cut out the letters from a magazine 
kind of ransom note or the like randomly faxed ransom note to the White House when Zoe Bartlett is kidnapped. Sure. One of the two. Either way, Jesus is writing the ransom note. Humanity sends humanity? a ransom note to God sending, for Jesus. Like, yeah, it's, it's well, not... humanity killed Jesus, so we're the ones writing the ransom note for yeah. Jesus and sending it to God. How do you send a ransom note to God, and what magazines would you use to do that? Right? <laughs> I feel like that question is heretical, and I don't know why. And are we <laughs> ransoming, ransoming Jesus for ourselves, for our salvation? And then for... does that become a word? Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> A downside to Calvinism I hadn't seen. Hmm. Okay. Deep, deep, complicated questions for Now our that's the Protestant work ethic at work. <laughs> <laughs> you have to ransom Jesus personally. Yes. Have fun writing that note to God. <laughs> and then in verse 7, we read, For this I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. And this made me think of Joe Miller, who's like a detective at the beginning of The Expanse. And then he dies, I think, at the end of the second season. And there's this like way that the proto molecule like makes him into this character that is the investigator who is basically like appointed by the proto molecule to like communicate with the humans, to be a herald to the humans. And like, Seems like he's telling the truth. Later we find out it might not be quite as altruistic as that. Mm, Okay. But yeah, so I was like, all right, Miller can be the the herald. Yeah, I do appreciate the very human nature of having to insert into your letter, I am telling the truth, I am not lying. Like that feels... (laughs) Right, like, okay. And then our gospel reading for this episode is from Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. Jesus shares the story of the dishonest manager whose corruption is eventually praised by his boss to illustrate that a person can't serve the two masters of God and wealth at the same time. So one of the themes that when I was preparing for this came up was the idea of predatory lending, that there's Ooh, yeah. there's an argument that the amounts that are forgiven are actually just the amounts of interest. That like the person borrowed 50 and is expected to pay back 100 or 80 and is expected to pay back 100. And I thought that was fascinating, particularly in light of student debt and student loans and the ways that like the debt that's being forgiven. Like it, It really feels like somebody took out student loans and now they're like, okay, you can pay back and we'll forgive some of this debt that you have so that you can pay it back when for like some people that's like just a teeny tiny amount of the interest not even all the interest but just like such a small amount because of how predatory the interest rates are but yeah yeah and then as we dive into the verses in verse three jesus says then the manager said to himself what will i do now that my master is taking the position away from me i am not strong enough to dig and i am ashamed to beg this feels like a really great example of how much of a lie it is when people call some types of labor quote-unquote unskilled labor yeah right in the hunger games right the districts are all deemed worthless and unskilled but the, there's no way that the capital citizens could ever do the work that the districts do that they couldn't ever be expected to lift a finger to work but also like they actually legit yeah are not able to they don't have that skill. And that is happening right now where people keep talking about unskilled labor and it's just a way to not pay people living wages. Yeah, I keep imagining a world where 
people who talk about unskilled labor have to like be a barista or work in fast food for a couple of days mm -hmm. and for one day like i would give people one day uh -huh. and see how they feel and then in verse 10, we read, whoever is faithful in a very little is faithful also in much. And whoever is dishonest in a very little is dishonest also in much. So this is true. And like, I'm on board with this in general, but also I want to encourage us to not convince ourselves that we're never wrong either. <laughs> like someone who you might think is lying about one thing might actually be lying about a whole different thing. That can be a problem. And I don't really believe in the concept of a person who can 100% always tell when someone is lying. Like my mom used to be really good at being able to tell when I was lying when I was younger, but as I get older, she's gotten worse at it. Although to be fair, some of that is just that we live in different states now. <laughs> not that I lie to my mother very often. Of course not. No, no, never, never lie to <laughs> your parents. Lying, bad, unless you're lying to the pharaoh. Well, but like believing yourself infallible is pretty much always going to do terrible things to you. Uh, so I'm just trying to discourage you from that. Like in Dune, I was reminded that several characters, uh, including the main character's mom, whose name is Jessica, several of these characters can tell when someone is lying, but sort of to different extents. And with Jessica, she can't really tell what someone is lying about. She can just tell that they're trying to deceive her about mm. something. And so like this becomes a problem when the guy who is trying to betray their whole family does tell her a lie and she knows that it's a lie but she believes he's actually lying about something else that is fairly innocuous and so she lets it go and that's what leads to almost their entire family being killed <laughs> so that's probably not going to happen to most of us thankfully but like don't believe that you are perfectly able to discern who is lying to you and who's not or who is honest and who's not because you're always going to make mistakes about that eventually so is where i'm trying to go with that sure. and then in verse 11 we read if then you have not been faithful with the dishonest wealth who will entrust to you the true riches i hope that those true riches are you know god talking about salvation and not like you know magic money that's perfectly honest that doesn't really seem to exist because these days it is remarkably difficult in today's world to actually make money while also being completely fair to every single person who is involved in that transaction somehow including mm -hmm. say your whole supply chain because the world is just too complicated for you to have full control over every single aspect of uh, any particular economic uh, interaction and so they also explain that in the tv show the good place and that that's kind of why no one is actually truly good or perfectly evil anymore because no one has that complete sense of control but what you can do is you can be as faithful as possible with the somewhat dishonest wealth that you do have that is a thing you can do and so that's kind of where i think this verse is going yeah that makes sense i have been really confused by this parable <laughs> while i was reading it I was like, oh yeah i was like, i am not preaching this like, week wait this this week falls between two different calls for me and i do not really mind missing this one to be entirely honest with you yeah i do love the way that good place is like intentional about that yeah and yeah it's a great that. show that's helpful in verse 13 that we read jesus saying no slave can serve two masters for a slave will either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other you cannot serve god and wealth so aside from obviously problematic slave language that like i don't actually know any slaves who love a master like that seems no no, pretty, that doesn't seem likely. inconsistent with reality. What I think Jesus is really getting at more, right, is you cannot 
idolize or hold as an ultimate concern, which is like a way of understanding the divine. Sure. So and so that makes like this make more sense to me. But it reminds me in the expanse when Holden throughout the series, and I'm talking about like the show. Sure. Holden is trying to like hold this like neutral position where he's like, I'm not gonna side with anybody but i'll like work with everybody kind of thing which as we know when you are neutral in situations of oppression you are defaulting to the side of the oppressor yeah but like he's trying to navigate this weird space between earth mars and the belters but then ultimately things continue to like coalesce and coalesce and coalesce and then he does end up actually picking a side and in in a way that's like actually really powerful and like choosing something for good reasons yeah in some ways i tend to interpret the sentence i mean yes you can't serve god and wealth at the same time but i i tend to interpret this as saying that you know if you have more than one boss because they're different people you're gonna have different like thoughts about them and preferences about them and that's natural Mm -hmm. and i've had more than one boss before and it's often kind of a mess (laughs) and like i get that so yeah it's it's complicated yeah. And it's not just bosses that you have different relationships with. It's literally yeah. every person is Anybody. different. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. And now for our delightful segment, let's make a Muppets musical and who we are casting for this episode. I went on a slight tangent with Kay's comment about elephants instead of <laughs> lions in Chronicles of Narnia. And so now I want either Fluffy, who is... Oscar the Grouch's pet, but all you see is like the trunk coming out of oh, the sure. garbage can, or Aloysius Snuffleupagus, also <laughs> known as Snuffy, yes. who is the like big giant holy yeah. mammoth Muppet to <laughs> to be God and the pride of Jacob. And I like and that. actually, since there were several years there where Snuffleupagus was apparently Big Bird's imaginary friend, there are a lot of people who would like that casting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Whereas my more recent comment about having more than one boss and how that would get difficult immediately now has made me think of trying to work for Statler and Waldorf that (laughs) like you'd have to have a fairly thick skin. It might be fun. It kind of depends. I, I don't know, but like trying to work for both of them at the same time feels like a lot. So yeah, that, that would, that would not be so fun. Yeah. Elmo, I think, might have a good way of praying for everyone, though. I bet Elmo could pray for even people who are powerful or problematic. Yeah, you'd sort of have to explain things to him, and that would be a little sad, but yeah. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. Catch us next time when we'll discuss nerdery connections to the scripture readings for the 16th Sunday after Pentecost. This podcast has been produced by us, Kay Roloff and Emily Ewing. For more fun, check us out on Twitter and Facebook at Nerds at Church, or contact us at nerdsatchurch at gmail.com. Also, if you like what you've heard, rate us or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Facebook, or wherever you catch your podcasts. If you want access to our uncut guest episodes and interviews, live Q&As, which is coming up, and more, support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nerdsatchurch. It's cheaper than capitalism, that's for sure. (laughs) What isn't? Also true. Yeah. Also, let us know on Facebook or Twitter who you would cast for Let's Make a Muppets Musical for this episode. As the ancient Christian said, Pox Phobiscum. Phobiscum.